We will be at this morning for our message, Psalm 2. If you open up your Bible right about to the middle, you should land right in the book of Psalms, and we will be in the second Psalm, Psalm number 2, this morning. Well, during the Christmas season, it's really easy to get lost in all the over-commercialization and all the materialism that kind of goes along with the season and really miss what Christmas is all about. And I think because this year has been so difficult for so many people, we're going to feel a greater pull into that because many of us are looking for some type of escape from all the difficulties that we've been facing. And so when I was praying about and considering what we were going to do for our Christmas message series, what I wanted to do was really just take a few weeks, take our eyes off of our circumstances, take our eyes off of everything that's going on around us, and collectively as a church family here in person and gathering online, and I wanted to take our eyes off our circumstances and simply focus on Jesus. Uh, but we're going to do something a little different in this series. Uh, the passages that we're going to look at are not what we would consider traditional Christmas passages. However, they do give us a great picture of who Jesus is and why, as our series is called, He is Worthy. Why He's worthy of our worship. Why He is worthy of our devotion. And the theme we're going to see unfold from Psalm 2 this morning is that Jesus is worthy because Jesus is our King. Now, by way of introduction, Psalm 1 and 2 both serve as kind of an introduction to the book of Psalms. Psalms is different than many other books of the Bible uh, because it wasn't written in one large chunk. Uh, Psalms was written uh, over a course of much of the Old Testament history, and they were prayers, they were corporate songs that the nation of Israel would use to worship. And Psalm 1 and 2 serve as the introductions. Uh, the two overarching themes of the book of Psalms are God's law or God's word and God's anointed one, the Messiah. Psalm 1 deals with God's word, and it tells us that blessed is the man, blessed is the woman, blessed is the person who submits to and who follows God's revelation. And then Psalm 2, as it tacks on that second overarching theme, Psalm 2 tells us blessed is the one who submits to God's chosen one, to God's anointed, to God's Messiah. And what Psalm 2 does is it paints a picture for us of Jesus as our King. Oftentimes during the Christmas season, we'll focus on Jesus as a baby in a manger, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's the right thing to do. Uh, but I want to remind us that Jesus is no longer a baby in a manger. Jesus is our king. With all the loss, uncertainty, and hardships that we have faced this year, and we still are facing, I want us to get a picture in our minds, not of who Jesus was, but of who Jesus is. Jesus is king, reigning from his throne of heaven. And one day that king will return to earth and then his reign will be without question and it will be without dispute. And we look forward to that day as the Bible calls our blessed hope. And it's my prayer that at the end of these next three weeks, we would have a high view of the glory of God as revealed in the person of Jesus. And he would consume our focus. He would consume our adoration and he would consume our devotion so that we can't help but lift our voices and live our lives in worship of Jesus. So if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read Psalm 2 this morning. If you're watching with us online, hopefully you've had a chance to find that in your Bible, Psalm 2. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, thanks so much for joining us, whether you're joining us here in the house or you're joining us online this morning. Uh, if you are a guest, I'd like to invite you to take out maybe a smartphone. You can go to fresnochurch.com connect. We have an online connection card that we would love to have you fill out this morning. And for every person that fills out that connection card, we're going to make a donation to a local charity here in town in your name. So let me encourage you to do that. We'd love to be in touch with you. And let me say this. If you're here this morning 
And at any point in the service, you have a question about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, whether you're watching here or you're watching online, let me encourage you to let us know in that online connection form at fresnochurch.com connect. If you let us know online, we will be in touch with you this afternoon about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. Let's read our text this morning, Psalm 2. The Bible says in verse 1 of Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heaven laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrifying them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray and then we'll jump into our message this morning. Father, we thank you that you are our king. And Lord, you're not like any other king as we saw in that video, but Lord, you are the king who suffered and bled and rose from the dead to conquer our sin and offer us forgiveness and restoration to God the Father. And I pray that as we study your word together this morning, that our eyes would be lifted off of our circumstances and onto you, Jesus, our king. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me and that your Holy Spirit would do in all of our hearts what my mere words cannot do. Lord, my words will ultimately and always fall short of the magnitude and the majesty of your glory, but I pray that your Spirit would make you big in our eyes and our hearts this morning. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. The first three verses of this psalm reveal to us the nature of humanity. The nature of humanity. As the psalm writer, who we learn in Acts chapter number 4 is King David, uh, as he looks out over all of creation, he asks this question, why are you rebelling against God? Why are you fighting and scheming against God and his anointed one? Why are you fighting and scheming against God and his Messiah? The word plot in verse number uh, 2, or excuse me, verse number 1, it's the same Hebrew word that we get in Psalm 1 that he, in Hebrews 1 it's translated as meditate. The idea is it means to moan or to growl, to muse or to meditate, to devise or plot or speak. You get the idea that there's this coordinated thought processes that are going into rebelling against the authority of God. The Bible tells us in these verses that they want to shake off God's authority. They want to be free so that they can be autonomous and be their own source of authority in and of themselves. And in the New Testament, when Peter and John are praying in Acts chapter number 4, they say that the unbelieving Jews that crucified Jesus, they're saying that Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Gentiles that are all present in Acts, in Acts chapter number 4, uh, Peter and John said that those are the heathen that are spoken of here in Psalm 2. Christ being crucified on the cross was the epitome of the nation's rage. They're wanting to throw off God's authority from their lives. And this is the nature of the human heart. You see, the paradox of the human heart is that we long for the justice and peace of the good king, but we rebel against his authority and set ourselves up as king. I mean, we can look at countless illustrations that our culture and society has given us of this year. 
But the paradox of our human heart is that we long for the justice of a good king. We long for the peace of a good king, but we rebel against that good king's rule. And we want to set ourselves up as king. Now, we might not be the literal heathens that are raging that David is talking about, but the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that, apart from Christ, every human being stands condemned. Ephesians 2, the first three verses say, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I mean, bad news. We all made the naughty list, right? I mean, you know the song. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus. It doesn't matter who's coming to town. Romans tells us that we're all naughty. Like, we all earn the lump of coal. By the way, why in the world do we teach our kids being in touch with your emotions is a bad thing? Like, don't get me started on that song. Anyway, it doesn't matter. The Bible tells us that we're all condemned. We're all under sin. And Psalms 2 gives us an example of the natural bent of the human heart for its own autonomy. And as we're about to see, this is pointless and it's empty. The psalmist continues and shows us our second thought this morning, and that is the futility of rebellion. Look at verse number 4. Uh, the Bible says, He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. It's almost like God in heaven looks down at our rebellion and goes, oh, that's cute. He goes on to say in verses 5 and 6, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Rebelling against God's authority and his reign expressed through his son Jesus, his anointed one, is pointless. The Bible says in Romans 14, 11, For it is written, he's quoting Isaiah, he says, As I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Jesus will reign despite what the world does because God has set his king on his holy hill in Zion. No matter what conflict may unfold, we can have confidence that victory will be given to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus sits upon a throne of grace and power. No matter what evil seems to thrive, no matter what darkness seems to move forward, God has set his king in heaven and none will resist him. It's not up for debate. God has his champion. The throne is occupied. Christ Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords and he is sitting comfortably in that spot. Nobody can challenge his rule. Nobody can challenge his reign. And so for us as believers, we can have confidence this morning that Jesus is our king and it doesn't matter what evil seems to be moving forward in our world, Jesus is king, and any type of evil against him is pointless and vain. When we look at verses 1 through 3, we get a picture of man's own rebellious heart and our foolish desires, and then verse number 6 shows us that no matter what, Jesus wins because God has his king. Then in verses 7 through 9, he shows us the ruling of that king. The ruling of that king. That's our third thought this morning. Look at verse number 7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now, in verse 7, when it says, God tells Jesus, today I have begotten you, we look at that and, and we might scratch our heads and be like, is God saying he created Jesus? But Jesus is already there. His anointed one's already there. So how can he be begotten when he was already there? But what that phrase means is it's not talking about the creation of Jesus. It's talking about the coronation of Jesus. Christ Jesus is the eternal son of God, and he has existed from eternity past and will continue to exist through eternity future. Jesus, like God, has no beginning and he has no end. In Revelation, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He always has been. He has existed from eternity past. The Bible tells us that he did not count his equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he let go of it and he became like us. He became like a man, the book of Ephesians tells us. Jesus then carried his cross and was held up for all the world to see. Jesus, the sinless, dying for us, the sinful, satisfying forever the wrath of God towards those who would call Jesus Christ the Messiah. Then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And upon his ascension back into heaven, the Bible says God would highly exalt him and give him a name that is above every name. So today, right now, as we gather in this room or as we're gathering online, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father in bodily form, ruling and reigning as God's anointed one. When the eternal Son of God declared to be the only begotten Son of God, the book of Acts tells us that this is his resurrection. So when was the eternal Son of God declared to be the begotten Son of God in power? Acts chapter 13 tells us. Acts 13, 32 and 33 says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So when in Psalm 2 it says, today I have begotten you, that's a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. And because that resurrection has already happened, what we are seeing here in Psalm 2 is the coronation of Jesus as king. Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. We saw that talked about in the video. Descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus fulfills the promise of the royal son of David who would rule on Jerusalem's throne in power. The moment of fulfillment is the resurrection. So when we hear the Bible talking about Jesus being the begotten son of God, that's talking about when Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's his coronation. That's when Jesus Christ is declared to be the king. And because he reigns in power, God tells Jesus in Psalm 2 that everything you have is yours. God the Father tells Jesus the Son, everything that exists is now under your rule. Then in verse 9 of Psalm 2, God proclaims certain doom. If these people that are raging remain his enemy, even though they gather with their might and their strength, it's insignificant compared to the omnipotent power that Jesus has. All their power is nothing. The Bible says they will be dashed to pieces like fragile pieces of pottery. But God does not leave them there with that doom pronounced over them. In verses 10, 11, and 12, as we wrap up the psalm, we see an invitation to blessing. Look at verses 10, 11, and 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The judgment we see in verse 9 
is real. But the invitation into blessing we see as the psalm concludes is just as real. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, we have the promise, you will be saved. That is why King Jesus is worth all of our worship and all of our devotion. While he has every right to judge us for our sins, he has given us his mercy. He has given us his life, his righteousness, his peace, his love. He is a refuge for us. Jesus is our strong tower where we can run to when we're in trouble. He is our shelter when life comes crashing down on us. He's our strength when we're weak. He enables us to persevere when we feel like we just can't go on anymore. He is our king, and he commands our allegiance. And at his return, he's going to take the mess that is our lives, and he's going to give us everything back. The Bible says that Jesus will make all things new. That's why he's worthy of our worship. Because while we deserve the judgment of verse 9, he gives us the blessing of verse 12. So be warned, my friends. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. But with Jesus, you will have the most real and lasting hope that is so far beyond anything this world can offer. His invitation to eternal blessing is available for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Will be saved, Romans 10, 13. Friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ, let me encourage you, just wave that white flag of surrender to the true king. The Jesus we are celebrating this season is no longer a baby in a manger. He's a king on his throne, ruling on behalf of his father, God Almighty. And the Bible gives us a promise that everyone who calls on his name shall be now, in conclusion, I want to look at how does Jesus being our king affect our lives? For those of us that are believers, we've called upon the name of the Lord. We are saved. How does the fact that Jesus is king, ruling and reigning, affect our daily lives? Well, first of all, we see in Psalm 2, we serve the Lord with fear. Psalm 2.11 tells us to serve the Lord with fear. That word fear can be translated reverential awe. If you're reading from the Christian Standard Bible, it actually says reverential awe. I'm using the English Standard this morning, and it says serve the Lord with fear. The concept, it recognizes that we deserve the judgment of verse 9, but because of the love and mercy of God, of our king, we get a blessed life. Like we see at the end of the chapter, at the end of the psalm. We get to live a blessed life. We get to experience true joy, true satisfaction, true fulfillment. We get to take refuge in our king. We don't have to fear judgment. We get to take refuge in his name. And so when it says, serve the Lord with fear... I love that line in the video. It's just terrifyingly wonderful. I think that's what it said. It's just this amazing concept that like, I should be scared for my life, but I don't have to be because of his love and his mercy and his grace. And with that reverence, with that sense of awe, with that sense of wonder, with that little bit of, oh man, I should be afraid, but I don't have to be, we serve the Lord. Since he is our king, we serve him. Friends, at your job, serve your king. In your home, you are serving Jesus. When you are working, you are serving Jesus. Men, when you sacrifice day in and day out, when you sacrificially love and serve your wife and your children, you're serving your king. Moms, when you sacrifice day in and day out for your children and for your husband in ways you think go unseen and unappreciated, you are serving your king. And let me tell you, he sees you. And that service brings him glory because you are serving your king. If you're a parent and you're sitting in the service and you feel like, man, I'm only getting half of what's being said because I'm trying to keep my kids from running down that aisle. I've got a kid in the back and I'm petrified right now, all right? <laughs> you are serving your king because you are by faith prioritizing worship of God over a perfect experience. 
And that brings glory to your king. That brings glory to your Savior. That brings glory to your Father. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, two of the most simple, mundane, basic things, right? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even the most simple, mundane parts of your life are meant to display the worthiness of God. Everything we do can be an act of service to our King. And so when we recognize that Jesus is our King, we serve Him with fear, the sense of reverence and wonder and awe. But it also means, number two, we live on mission. We live on mission. The judgment we see in this passage is real. And our hearts should not be one of derision. We don't laugh at those who don't know our Savior because we deserve that same judgment. We deserve that same wrath, but God in His mercy and His love has spared us from that. And so we don't live with a sense of derision, but mission. Our hearts should not be one of derision, but mission. Recognizing that there's people out there who desperately need Jesus, and because judgment is real, we got a mission, we got a job. There's people out there who need to hear an invitation to their Savior, Jesus. This is why Christ has ordained his church to be light and darkness, because his grace is reaching out to the very people that want to be his enemy. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we're sinners, even though there's people out there who are deserving of God's wrath, Christ's love and his grace is reaching out to them, and it's our job to be his ambassadors, to live on mission so that they can hear that there's a good king who loves them, who will give them everything, abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven. People need to hear this invitation. They need to hear that there is a king who doesn't want to use you, but who suffered and bled and died and rose from the dead for you so that you could have your sins forgiven and be reunited with God the Father. Because Jesus is king, we live on mission. The Great Commission is our mission. And so we serve him with fear. We live on mission Third, we joyfully follow. End of verse 11 says, we rejoice with trembling. Jesus holds our ultimate allegiance. Jesus holds our ultimate allegiance. Not a political party. Not even our country. Not a creed. Not a sports team or a hobby or a job or a source of income. None of these things have died for us. None of these things can offer us forgiveness of sins. They'll promise fulfillment, but they always leave us wanting. Jesus will never leave you wanting. Only Jesus brings authentic satisfaction and fulfillment. So with a heart full of contentment and love, we joyfully follow our king. It's a joy. It's a delight. I get to follow the king of kings and lord of lords. I don't have to live with the selfish ambition trying to find my own autonomy, trying to make my own way, trying to be my own man. No, I can be a man of the king of kings. I can be a man of God. I can be a man who joyfully follows and submits to his king. Because all that Jesus has done for us, we gladly pledge our lives and our allegiance to him. So we serve him with fear. We live on mission. We joyfully follow. And then number four, we humbly submit. Verse 12 tells us to kiss the sun. Now in the Middle East, I, I know we read that and in our Western minds, we're like, huh? <laughs> like, I'm a guy. I don't want to kiss another dude. That's weird. Uh, in the Middle East, this is just a sign of respect and submission. The closest Western equivalent I could think of, like in the Middle Ages, when you see somebody kiss the ring of a king. That's the idea. It's this sign of respect. It's a sign of submission. It's a sign of, I am humbling myself before you because you are my king. I humbly submit to you. 
And so as his followers, we humbly submit. When Jesus asks us to walk through hard things, we trust that he is good and we know that he knows what is best. And so we walk through those difficult paths with the promise that he is always with us. Humbly. With the heart of submission that says, God, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you are good. And because you're my king, I have the promise that you're going to work all things together for my good because I love you. So I'm going to humbly submit. A few Psalms later in Psalm 23, we have the promise, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Our king is good. He doesn't call us to submit and just leave us on our own. He says, yes, there are going to be hard things that you have to walk through. Following Jesus is not a walk in the park. Jesus says, I send you out as sheep amongst wolves. It's dangerous. But we have the promise that he is always, 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 always with us. And because he is good, I can humbly submit. Maybe you're here this morning and you're wrestling against a sin or a temptation. I want you to imagine in your mind the effect of a true and full understanding of Christ's rule could have on that struggle. It might look like this. King Jesus, this fleeting pleasure pales in comparison to the joy and satisfaction of worshiping unhindered and unobstructed before your throne. The small, weak pleasure that this sin or temptation offers is nothing compared to the joy of worshiping unhindered and unobstructed before your throne. So today I choose you and obedience to you over this sin because better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling because you're consumed with sins of self-absorption or self-reliance. You want to be your own person. When you hear people talk about submitting, there's something in you that struggles a little bit and you bristles a little bit because you're like, no, I'm an American. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I, I'm my own person. I'm a self-made man. And when we talk about humbly submitting to our king, we struggle with that a little bit. Here's what submitting to Christ's rule might look like for you. It might like King Jesus. You sit on the throne and are the only one worthy of all the glory and honor and praise. And so I turn my eyes off of myself and onto you and I look full into your wonderful face. And just like that old hymn says, the things of earth will then go strangely dim. As we humbly submit to our king, recognizing that he is the only one that's worthy of worship and adoration and devotion, I'm not worthy of that. I'm not worthy of that for myself. I let myself down on a daily basis. Only Jesus is big enough to handle that. That's what it looks like to humbly submit to our king. And because Jesus is king, he is worthy of all of our worship, all of our adoration, all of our devotion. So this, Christ, this Christmas season, submit to the king and live a blessed life. A life that experiences joy and satisfaction and love and peace. No matter what's going on in your life or what's going on in our country or what's going on around you, you can live a blessed life. That's our takeaway this morning. Submit to the king and live a blessed life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a church that submits to you. Lord, there's so many things in our lives, in our cultures, in our own hearts that compete for submission, that compete for adoration, that compete for ultimate focus. But I pray that Fresno Church would be known for being a people that above all submit to their King Jesus. And I pray that when we struggle, when our pride, when the dragon of pride creeps up into our lives, I pray that we would recognize it is a slain foe 
and that we would humbly submit to our King and experience the blessed life that you promised. Lord, in these next few moments as we pray and as we sing, I pray that your Spirit would show us areas of our heart and our lives where we're not submitting. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that hasn't ultimately submitted, they don't they haven't placed their faith and trust in Jesus. They don't have that relationship with you, Lord. I pray that today would be the day that they place their faith and trust in you. Lord, if they need help, I pray that they would seek out a friend that brought them or they would fill out that form online so that we can reach out to them and show them what it means to walk with you and have a relationship with you. We ask this in your son's beautiful and holy and majestic and powerful name.